He's your curly head mate who's ready to go Nobody knows snow like reggae no snow He's ready to blow like an atomic reactor This is the show where we call it chill factor Talk on the pow, are you ready right now? There's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah this is chill factor Hi, I'm Reg Ellis and welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Weird times here in the mountains, the first day of spring and all ski resorts are closed in Australia and New Zealand thanks to COVID lockdowns and we're waiting anxiously to see if they'll be given the go-ahead to reopen next week for the last few weeks of the season, which will be pretty good, a good base across the Aussie Alps and I reckon we've got a month or so of good spring skiing, hopefully in resort and in the backcountry. Now in this podcast, I catch up with Chris Booth, one of Australia's leading skiers of the past two decades, who was at the top of the free skiing seen here in Australia in the early 2000s to uh, mid 2000 that was the peak of free skiing where he won most events, nailed magazine covers and movie segments and travelled the world as a pro skier for a decade uh, in his late teens and early 20s Chris was at university and he actually worked for a few uninspiring years as a lawyer in Sydney before moving to France after grabbing an opportunity to work with his ski sponsor Black Crows in Chamonix there he met his Norwegian wife Lene and now, seven years after leaving Australia, Chris lives in Oslo with Lene and their daughter Ingrid, working with the bag company DB, formerly known as Deuce Bags. I caught up with Chris last week to talk about the move to Chamonix, the ski industry, life as a foreigner, and how skiing has defined his life. Let's drop in. Chris Booth, welcome to the Chill Factor podcast. Hey, thanks. This is, this is fun. I feel nervous. Should I be nervous? Well, we have, uh, have interviewed you a number of times, and obviously you have a a very close association with Chill Factor as a uh, you know, former associate editor, so I don't think you should be nervous. Yeah, it was just we were having this conversation and then as soon as you pushed record, I started feeling nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't think uh, that's necessary. So, yeah, well, I'm here in, looking out the window at Snowy Threadbow and you're in the, uh, at home having a cup of coffee in your house in Oslo in Norway. So a uh, bit of a change in life for you over the last few years, Chris. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. It's, it's 8.40 in the morning here and I'm in Oslo. And um, yeah, it's been a lot of change. I think it's seven and a half years since I'd left Australia with a plan to leave for kind of one or two. And, you know, as way leads on to way, things happen and things change. And yeah, here I am uh, in Oslo and I'm actually, I'm on a mountain too. Yeah. Uh, Oslo is like... Um, uh, in a way, it's a bit like Hobart. You know, you've oh, okay. got the sort of bay and you've got access to the ocean and then there's some f- a little bit of flat land and then behind that you start going up into the hills. Yeah. So actually where I am, there is a little ski resort just a couple of minutes down the road um, and then the city is just at the bottom of the hills. So it's a, it's a bit of a mix of both worlds here. Yeah, but not, well, not dissimilar to where you're sitting, Rigo. Yeah, well, it's interesting uh, how you ended up there, you know, like... Um, You've had uh, quite a career in this snow industry since you left Australia, but um, we'll get to that rashy now. You're in Oslo, of course. You, uh, you mar- you, you're married, um, got a young daughter now. Um, that all started when you are in Chamonix, when you left Australia to work for Black Crows. You were a ski sponsor at the time. And then yeah. you, you met someone and bang, you're on the other side of the world. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I'm not sure if it happened to me or if it happened for me, but at any, in, in any way, like I don't, 
I don't feel like I ever really exercised my own agency much through the last seven years. It just yeah. sort of happened. Um, yeah, I was, um, you know, I was living in Sydney um, until 2015, beginning of 2015. Yeah. And I was, you know, given the absolute luck to have a mum and dad who own a ski shop in Sydney. So, you know, I got to grow up skiing through ski holidays. And then as the free skiing movement took off, I was able to compete um, sort of successfully enough to be able to get some sponsors and that pay for travel. So I kind of had this awesome augmented youth because of skiing and because of this sort of amazing connection to a more of a European American Alpine sport than an Australian one, as we know, but um, it got me started. And then I was, um, you know, pretty committed to having a quote unquote real job. Yeah. That's what I was sort of seemed real uh, at the time. So I got, I got one of those as a lawyer and I was lawyering in, in Sydney CBD and um, it was, it was pretty miserable, I think. Well, I don't think it was right for my programming and I don't know how I ever thought it would be, yeah. but it was, it, was, it was sort of me fleshing out some idea of legitimacy that I'd created for myself because that's what I'd seen from others. And maybe it had something to do with a bit of insecurity of being involved in winter sport in Australia, that it was yeah. never seen as a legitimate, credible thing in a way in our culture. Um, so maybe I had like a, an insecure side that said, oh, Chris, you have to go and get, you know, a legitimate job and it needs to look like this and you need to work on level whatever and you need to do it this way. So I did that, um, but I was, not a, I was not a super happy camper. I just felt out of place. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I decided to leave when I got an opportunity to work for, at the time, a very small, basically startup well, I don't know what you call a startup that's been around for 10 years. Yeah. Just not a very successful company, I think you call that, um, called Black Rose in Chamonix. So I went for it. And um, I even remember the phone call that you and I had, Reggae, and I told you that I was, you know, going for it. I, I actually remember where I was. I was in the car park at Wanda Beach. Yeah. And I'd just, I'd just gotten the job and I'd just made the decision like that week. And I, I can't remember why I called you, but I remember sharing the news. Yeah. That seems like a lifetime ago now. Yeah, well, seven and a half years ago, it is a long time, you know. And, um, you know, since then, of course, obviously you started at Black Crows and your role there was like marketing, business developing and um, development. And it, it sort of blossomed pretty quickly, like Black Crows grew. But before we get into that, I might sort of take it back a little bit. And, you know, you, you mentioned how you grew up skiing. Um, the, you know, you're a mogul skier originally, weren't you, competitively? And then you sort of gravitated or just moved logically into free ride? Yeah, I mean, it was sort of all sorts. Um, I remember uh, saying that I wanted to be a ski racer when yeah. I was a kid. And it was all about ski racing and it was about being Alberto Tomba. Oh, okay. uh, but Italian playboy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That was my, that was my vision. I wanted to be an Italian playboy. But when I, um, when I look at old videos uh, that dad took of me skiing, I was not on the main slope trying to make racing turns. I was always at the sides of the slope looking for all the jumps. Yeah. 
Um, and so I uh, remember joining the Parish of Blue mogul team right. with the blue and yellow suits. And I thought yeah. that was amazing. So, th- so I ended up going into moguls, which I was sort of maybe naturally better at. Um, but you know, at that age, you're just kicking around doing whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I sort of pursued that. And, and I remember that doing that, I was um, decent, but I was like better at doing the jumps. And then when we saw the videos come out in the early thousands of what the guys were doing in North America on the Black Cone Glacier and with these orange Salomon skis and this, this sort of movement that was happening, once those videos sort of made it to Australia and I was able to watch them, then it was just like a complete reset of the agenda yeah. and, and a complete change in terms of what skiing was. And at my age of, I don't know, 11 or 12, it was just like, okay, this is, this is what, it was just obvious that this is what was going to happen. So then I jumped into all of that and that came very naturally because I had a trampoline at my home and I had yeah. videos on the TV and that's all I needed to get going. So yeah, was that like the Canadian Air Force influence? Is that what they call? You know, it was like the Three Philippes and all that crew. Shane's off. Yes, yeah, and it had started a little bit before that, yeah. and it had started in different areas around the, the world. And often movements do happen simultaneously, but it was really the the couple of videos that were published about the the guys on the Black Home Glacier, yeah. and especially when the Salomon team came out. And they had those orange skis and they were like a team. So it was, what yeah. was it? It was JF Cousson, um, Philippe Poirier, um, JP Eau Claire, Vincent Dorian, Mike Douglas, all, the, all of these guys. That They really sort of set the vision for what, it, what skiing was going to be. And straight away, everything fell away. And I was just all about trying to do those tricks from the videos and yeah. like learn them on the trampoline and then just have a go at skis. And that, that started very, very early for me, like 12, 12 years old. Yeah. Was that um, the trampoline already at home or did the videos inspire you to harass your parents for a trampoline? No, by hazard, uh, on my 10th birthday, mum and dad got me a round trampoline because that was the thing then. And we'd always had one of those little rectangle ones that you got from Kmart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then we got this round one, and that just opened up a whole new world because you could, you know, you could be a lot less precise and bounce around on it a lot more. So I would spend, you know, my summers um, – bouncing on this round trampoline and watching these videos of these guys in North America, it would be 30 degrees. And, and I even remember freeze magazine started coming through in the local news agency in Karimbar. So I was sort of living in this other world in my head and like reenacting it on this trampoline from you know, South, South Sydney. But that was a very good um, training really, because I got my 10,000 hours, you know, yeah. in a week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so I was able to combine, um, I, d- I think a pretty good, um, upbringing of skiing fundamentals because of the programs in Parish of Blue that you could go into as a young person, um, the inter-school skiing events, which is an, an amazing organization that created a feeling of competition that was about schools. Yeah. Um, the two season thing where mum and dad would love to take that two week a year ski holiday. So, I mean, it was kind of an amazing blend of being able to access competition, access media, 
ski in the southern hemisphere but also have the opportunity to kind of take a summer holiday because that's what mum and dad lived for yeah and all of those things allowed me to um really i guess focus not that i knew what focus was at that age but <laughs> really focused around those goals of being like those guys in the video yeah as fast as possible well it, yeah it's around that time i suppose you, you're pretty young and the um free skiing in australia had a pretty solid competition uh circuit almost then you know like the x games the red bull air raids and things like that it was funny um I don't know if it's ironically, but Ben, your old mate, Ben Murphy, uh, sent me a video today and it was uh, from the air raid down in uh, Falls Creek and it's actually uh, for the TV thing. I'm interviewing him before the event, which, of course, you won that event. I think it was 2001, so 20 years ago. Uh, you were 15 and it was $5,000 first prize, which that's a lot of money 20 years ago, you know. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think um, you won it. Skinner, uh, Ben came second, and your old mate Woody Boomer was third. So, yeah, back then there was a, a real sort of um, camaraderie of uh, these skiers going to these little events around the country: Victoria, Perisher, Threadbow, etc. Um, it was a pretty vibrant time, I reckon, in Australian free skiing. It really was. Um, I think there was a really healthy newness effect that was visiting skiing because it was you know it was happening and the the, the image of a skier had suddenly changed from the sort of upright um personal holiday maker to this sort of young punk and um red bull you know got behind it um there was that's right planet x it was a version of the x games but effectively the x games franchise and, and that brought in all sorts of corporate sponsors and tv rights um every brand was thinking, okay, this is what we have to get into now. This is the movement. And it was, yep. you know, the fastest growing sport on the planet by a long margin for about, you know, five or six years. Yeah. And, um, I was, uh, just, yeah, 13, 14, 15, 16 during that, during that time. And it, I, if I think back on it, yeah, it was easy to get sponsored. It was easy to, all of a sudden go into some sort of tour of events that just popped up yeah. kind of all at the same time. Um, and there was media getting involved because there was still um, the power of print, um, the sort of film, once a year film industry was getting sort of started and all of those things sort of concentrated into a really, a really good set of opportunities for young people to actually do skiing, even from Australia and yeah. to actually be financed to, to do it and create a profile out of it. And even though none of it was like rubber stamped, legitimate Olympic program or, or something, it was, it was still working. Even if people, especially in Australia, didn't even know what it was. I mean, I remember, remember like my life in Cronulla was just so different. And I remember trying to explain the sport that I did to people and they just have, would have no idea. So it was, it was sort of a strange thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was strong then. I mean, even people like Candy Tovex and uh, Tanner Hall came out for those events. Um, it was a pretty exciting time. But the, and the evolution of that, it just sort of, for you, I suppose, it went from, um, I suppose you could say, park and pipe, uh, free skiing style into the big mountain 
area and things like, you know, competing overseas in the Swatch Cup and the Red Bull line catcher and things like that. How did that develop? Like you've gone from this grommet from, you know, skis perisher in winter, lives and surfs in Cronulla in summer to all of a sudden you're spending time in Europe, you know, during your, your Christmas school holidays. And was that just a natural evolution or did it just, you know, I know your parents used to go overseas, but always intrigued me. You say, well, how did you just end up in Europe all the time <laughs> when you were competing? <laughs> Well, I think to take one step back, where did the, the, the sort of desire to keep, to keep uh, evolving your skiing come from? Um, I think it's natural that as a skier, you consider that to be a lifelong journey that's it's going to change shape. It's cha- still changing shape for me. Yeah. Um, but it, I think it also comes from being Australian and surfing culture. I, I think, you know, it comes from very much you, Reggae, and the... the the involvement that you've had by, you know, having a magazine that was modeled very much in the style of, of surfing world. Um, yeah. And the involvement that you've had in media gave us also a platform and a profile, but you also had a point of view on what it meant to be a skier. And also in my sort of cohort, if you look at guys like Ben Murphy, it's fantastic, fantastic surfer um, yeah. from Wollongong and Woody Boma also a very strong surfer um, from south of Sydney. And these were the guys that I was being influenced by, you know, locally. Yeah. And the way that they saw skiing was through the lens of how surfers see surfing. So it was always in the optic to be an all-rounder. Yeah. And the freestyle jump or the half pipe, that was something you did, but it didn't define you. In fact, yeah. you were kind of on this... Um, the, the aperture was bigger about what it meant to be a skier. So I never questioned that. It just was that way in my, in my culture. So it's always been like, okay, you do moguls or you do the racetrack in, uh, in inter schools, but then if it's snowing, then of course you're out skiing. Yeah. Even if it's not snowing, you're out skiing wind buffed, uh, waves or slush or whatever it is, you're just out there in the conditions, um, being athletic and being creative and finding, finding, you know, what's interesting. So that makes you a a rounded skier. And it also teaches you that this is one of those rare sports that can, that can take you on a lifelong journey and you can experience in, in, at such a spectrum, very much like surfing is. Yeah. So um, the basic motivation for me, I think was that, not that I ever questioned it, but I think it was that way. So I was doing the you know, freestyle competition stuff, like the big air and the slope style and half pipe. And it, that was good for me because I was able to be successful at that at a pretty young age. Um, but it was never the destination. And I think I lacked maybe the drive of someone like Russ Henshaw, who I really admire what he was able to accomplish. Yeah. Um, and athletes that you see today where it's like, all right, that's the, that's the game. I'm going to play that game all the way to the end and I'm going to specialise in that. Was um, it drive for me, it was more like becoming... Drive or desire, you know, you just sort of, you know, did, it was it something you didn't want to do. Go, yeah, you know, like you talk about Russ, um, you know, his path ended up on, you know, X Games, uh, Olympics, things like that. Was it, you say you didn't have the drive to follow that path or was there was it more i want to just sort of free ski i don't know you tell me was it 
Did you ever think about going to competitive park? Well, I mean, I could have done moguls and just followed that for a few years and done the World Cups and the Olympics, and I was in that whole system that was already built. And I, I left that because I, I clearly didn't have that desire then. Yeah. And I don't think I had that desire afterwards um, yeah. to really um, – you know, I, I wanted to be good and I was interested, but I wanted to, uh, what, what I was interested then is what I'm interested in now. It's the practice yeah. of skiing and, yeah. and how it, you know, what you find interesting and how you're developing at any point in time. So for me, it was very, very, um, whether I knew it or not, it was very clear that I just wanted to do the best skiing that I could. And that the definition of the best skiing to me changed as I grew up. Um, And I I don't think I was ever truly motivated by the events. In fact, I found that pressure because I was able to get results young. And I don't think I had the sort of emotional equipment to continue developing on top of that expectation. So I found myself quite early questioning what, what, what am I, why am I doing this? And the answer was always like to work on the parts of my skiing that I saw the most fun in developing. Yeah. Um, and I think also the, the film industry and the, the media industry, the things that could, you know, support a profile as a paid skier were very much looking at, um, this a backcountry idea or this yeah. like jumping in powder or jumping off cliffs and skiing in the mountains and similar to surfing. If you grow up at a beach break, you get really good at aerials, but then as you develop more, you want to kind of explore yeah. more consequential waves. And, and, and it was very, very much the same thing for me in that you wanted to go higher up the mountain um, to bigger challenges in uh, natural environments where, you know, that was the ultimate testing ground as a skier. It's okay, you can do a 720 or whatever in yeah. a perfectly made jump yeah. and you can practice that 200 times a day and you can perfect it. Um, but the real challenge for me was always, okay, you you climb up a mountain and you're going to memorize it and you're going to do a turn over here, drift above the exposure there, then do a bank turn into this like a naturally shaped formation that you've observed. And then you're going to do a freestyle move off that first go land and then continue skiing down the mountain. To me, that was like, that was the pinnacle of the practice was to be able to bring certain things together and um, interact with what nature has provided and challenge yourself in that way. And that it still is the hardest thing to do. Yeah. Definitely. And I suppose, well, you said earlier that, you know, when you were young, 15, 16, and just what was happening in free skiing in Australia, it wasn't hard to get sponsors. Um, Okay, during your whole school and university, you know, um, career, time of your life, you did have sponsors. I mean, you know, you did all these shoots, like pretty cool shoots with Rip Curl. And, you know, was it, did you ever make any money? Like, was it, was it, um, you know, was it, just paying for your um your traveling or you know through your sponsors was a bit more than that you know did you ever put anything in the bank well i think i i would say my career as a skier was roughly 10 years yeah and the first five years i think i was making money and the second five years i was spending it um and that's because um in the second five years i wasn't doing events and I was, I wanted to travel and yeah. I wanted to 
you know, spend more. I was also get, I was also wasn't a kid anymore, so I had to start yeah. to pay my own way for more things. Yeah. But um, so it happens when you're. Yeah, I, I mean, the the hidden part is the things that I never paid for. So thanks to, you know, the Warbrick family, family and the singers, and and Rip Curl's commitment to winter sport in Australia, you know, that was really the main. They were really the main support of 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 that period so yeah. that I could I could ski. It was it was Rip Curls deciding that it wasn't just a surf brand, it was also a mountain brand. And their kind of yeah, long term support of me to just to do that and to let me do whatever I wanted to do. Um, that allowed me to take a lot of great trips to you know to New Zealand, to to Nepal. Uh, across Europe, the US. Um, so they were, you know, they were an, a really significant factor in enabling me to do skiing and to, and to actually try to become a complete skier rather than just, a, you know, do some contests and, and, and whatever it is. So that was a really big factor in being able to afford it. it was not necessarily whether I made or spent money, but the companies that had the resources to actually support you know, yeah. athletes and, and the fact that they chose to do that. Yeah. And I, I suppose um, you were talking about, you know, the annual movies like the TGR, Matchstick Films and things like that, which obviously still come out. Um, Magazine-wise, print is not as strong as it is, obviously. You know, like, Kill Factor is the only snow magazine, ski or snowboard, left in Australia. And we've seen Powder and uh, Snowboarder being shut down in the US. So it's all... Um, I suppose for a professional skier or snowboarder now, or someone who want to make wants to be follow that path, it's all about self promotion and social media. Um, are you kind of glad you sort of missed that one? Yeah, um, yeah. Everything is just becoming fragmented and granular, and I think that it's, it's a bit. I don't want to be like the sort of the pessimist, but there's a disappearance of cultures, including ski culture, mountain culture, surfing culture, every culture is being consolidated into, you know, um, the, the platforms owned by large, large technology companies. And you could even call it a confiscation, not that I think there was any intention to it, but that's just what's happened. Um, and I'm very glad that I got to um, experience uh, being a young athlete while there was a support system of media that was able to hold you up and say, Hey, look at this one photograph or read this interview or watch these couple of clips. And everyone could go towards those few focal points to sort of see what the culture was curating and filtering and signaling as a sign of quality. And it created a system of rank and hierarchy. It, it created value uh, and all of these things that you just don't have today because it's completely uh, it's completely fragmented, and I wouldn't use the word democratized because it's it's not really democratic. It's, it's algorithmic now the way it works, and I think today your ability to explore your potential as an athlete is actually sort of perverse by your ability to create content as a creator. Yeah. Like you can't. It's not enough to just be good at a sport anymore. You have to be a media. And you have to be able to have your own production house and you basically have to entertain. Yeah. We are all entertainers in some respects. That's why they have scores in freestyle events. You do the entertainment and they score you. But today you really are an entertainer sort of dancing for your cake 
judged by your volume of, you know, your engagement volume and your likes. And then you trade on that with brands in, in, you know, in exchange for advertising space. So I think it's a great sadness because very few people in sports are also equipped to be media personalities. So I think we lost something there. And at the same time, there's a lot of great stories of people who that system would not have rewarded, but have been able to grow and create their own jobs outside of that system just by using the technology. So it's a two edged sword. Um, I think we're just like an experimental generation in a way. Um, and there will be a balancing back. I don't think we'll give away all the access to content that we currently have and people and the level playing field that that provides. But I do, I think, I think a lot of, I think everyone's missing just the filter and the curation and the quality because it's very tiring to be, you know, the arbiter of quality every time you pick up your phone or check status or whatever. Um, So I think that's all going to come back. I, I really do. Yeah. Well, you know, the objective editor to, to, um, to sort of take it away, take it that direction. But, uh, well, you know, in your role at, at uh, Black Crows, you know, when you, you were talking earlier how you said it was like almost like even though it was a 10-year-old company, it was a pretty tight, big mountain ski brand based out of Chamonix. And then your role was to, was pretty, you know, your job description, I think you once told me, was you, you were there to, turned it into a niche, an international company. And it grew from a ski brand to having, you know, high-end technical outerwear, a big push into North America. And you did that. You chose a number of skiers to represent Black Crows to, to build it pretty quickly in the US, which it did really quickly in North America. So what were you like, you know, you had the other hat on. You'd gone from being a professional, um, aspiring, you know, professional skier yourself to hiring professional skiers. What did, what were you looking for when you grabbed people like Michelle Parker and Mark Abner and people like that? Um, well, the, the ski industry was like a cheat code for me to learn about a business um, because I already had a lot of domain knowledge and, and the network. So I was able to um, go from to a, being a junior lawyer to a marketing manager and education definitely helps. So going to uni is something I would definitely recommend. Um, and doing a, if you don't know what to do, do a business degree. Um, and then figure it out later because it turns out there's lots of things you can do with, with some fundamentals. Yeah. Um, but it was just very easy for me to um, add value to that company because um, I knew the core practice of skiing and I, and I had a lot of contacts from the 10 years that I'd been involved. And I was able to combine my sort of marketing and business fundamentals, which were pretty scratchy, I won't lie, with my just knowledge of the, of the ski culture, the practice and the people. And it was, um, uh, I didn't, I don't think even had a strong awareness at the time. I thought it was this big glitzy bright lights ski brand because I was 27. It was my first sort of job in a business. But really it was a very small, like six to eight person ski brand mainly selling in France yeah. with a few distributors and just, you know, like $2 million a year in sales, which $2 million sounds like a lot of money, but for a business actually yeah. it's not much when you're making and manufacturing products and, and, and bringing them to market. 
Um, so I was just kind of going with the flow of an agenda set by others, but I knew how to do it. So, um, one of the priorities was make a start in the North American market. Yeah. And, um, the good news was, is that black crows was a, was a very good product and, um, it was able to collide sort of authentic sports so core skiing and design. Uh, together to make a very modern looking and modern functioning ski product, I would say. And so it was in a way, it was an easy start when you've got a great product to sell and a unique story from France to go to the Americans and say, here's what we have. But um, to make the brand grow, um, one of the key things was just to open up to the world and participate in the cultures of other countries, whether that be Austria or the US or even Australia, and and to make your brand feel local there. And the best way to make your brand feel local, aside from working with the local media, is by giving your product away to to locals. So it was very easy in, in skiing because the culture has like locations that you can identify. So Jackson Hole is a, is a, zone of energy whistler is a zone of energy um so you could just kind of go in there and find the people who were living and breathing the you know the culture there and were really much about the practice and were sort of symbolic of the ideas of the brand and then we just gave them product yeah um but we did that in a, in a more aggressive way than a small company would where you give out a product here or product there i remember the first year that we went into north america we had an article in powder and 100 ambassadors straight off the bat Um, and that gets you sort of like a grassroots feeling that Mm. hey people are starting to adopt this but then we needed american style to go also to the top level um and work with um the types of skiers who were almost the last of their generation because they became famous through the films which no longer really exist Right. And there hasn't been like ski stars in the same way since those films because the, the media landscape just doesn't really enable that. And we chose Mark Abmer and Michelle Parker uh, and also Callum Pettit yeah. and Christina Lustenberger, who was sort of up and coming then. She's an ex-World Cup um, skier, but um, really strong, credible, real skiers who are there for life. Um, and that really put us on the map from a brand awareness perspective to do that. But it was the sort of the, the approach of making sure that we were in all the good ski shops. There was always a local crowd with the product and we had some of the big, um, you know, the big name ski stars using, using our product and powder magazine liked us. So it was that combination of things which enabled the brand to just kind of get started in America and enable people to sort of take notice because like when you start anything, let alone a new market or a new company, people generally, people generally don't want to help you right at the beginning. They generally stand there with their arms folded and say, oh, well, not another ski brand or your thing's going to fail or whatever it is. People are generally skeptical to new things. But then there's like, if you can manage to go through that part, then you go through this kind of like honeymoon phase where you're new and you're there and people don't question that anymore. They're just really excited because there's something new, a new story and something's happening. 
So then, you know, that really helped us get into the honeymoon period where we were welcome and people wanted to learn about the brand, this little Chamonix authentic brand. Um, They wanted to try the product. They wanted to have it in their store and and off it went. So that's how it worked. I mean, there was no strategy to it. There was no blueprint. There was no business plan. Like I didn't know about any of that stuff, but it was the learnings from it. You could translate into one retrospectively. So it was, it was really cool for me to have um, the support of a great brand, great product, really authentic founders, a very good CEO who kind of trained me without overwhelming me and to just kind of learn by doing uh, was really helpful for me to actually start a career or restart a career that, you know, now you could translate into like a business case if you wanted to. Yeah. But it was, you know, the learning there for me was like, it's actually great to use a sport that you love or a passion that you're really into to start your working life because you, there's so much that you know that can't be learned any other way that helps you get going. And the rest, you know, the whatever, your media plan, your marketing strategy, your P&L, your go-to-market plan, your supply chain, like all that stuff that a business needs, you can learn that along the way or you can even study that. But the best way to kind of get going is to sort of do what you're into, you know, and, and, and live what you sort of love and try to integrate that into your life so you don't have to go to work, you know, between quotation marks. You just, you just, do, this, you just do what you like doing with people that you enjoy yeah. doing that with and every day there's a new problem to solve. But if you're into it at the very base of what you're doing, you never really question if that's a problem or just the next sort of challenge to overcome. Yeah. Well, you know, that you talked about before your university degree and law, you're a junior lawyer. What did you work like a, a year or a year and a half as a lawyer? Was that long? Three and a half years. Three and a half. Yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. I wasn't very good. Uh, I was just <laughs> young. So you don't, you don't know anything in, I mean, that's why in your, I'm 33 um, and I already have a perspective on my 20s and that's it. You don't know anything when you're in your 20s. And I'm, I'm amazed at these like kids that are able to found these companies and they become billionaires. I just don't know how they do it. You don't know anything. You no. just know what you were into and you maybe got a, a really close knowledge to that. Yeah. But, um, you know, doing experiences over things and following your passions is definitely the best way to spend that decade. You know, if I could have it again, I would just do that even more and even earlier yeah. and then let it end up wherever it ends up. Well, yeah, you know, if you're, you're in a, you know, a high rise building in downtown Sydney in your, your suit and tie as a lawyer, and then your, your French ski sponsor rings you up and says, Hey, Chris, we got this opportunity. You want to move to Chamonix? I mean, to me, it seems like, yeah, that was, that's a pretty easy decision, but was it at the time? Did you feel like, did you feel like it was risky or was it just seeing, you know what, this is an adventure. I love skiing. I've got to go. No, I think it was a way out. Um, I think for like two, I think even maybe since this, I started working in the, the legal profession, I really respected it. I'd done my years at uni. I could do it, but there was something wrong. And I just 
felt it, that there was something wrong. So um, I, the year before, basically quit uh, the firm I was working at to go on an Alaskan ski oh, adventure. Right. Sugar Mountain, yeah. yeah. Sugar Mountain with the McLennan brothers that they'd organised to a tee and, and uh, we did with a, a bunch of young guys. And that, that opportunity came to me that they rang up and said, do you want to do this? We want to do it. I was locked into this like career thing and no one got to take six weeks off from a law firm like that. Yeah. It was very, unless you took like a sabbatical or something in your forties, but no one, no one at 24 would, you know, would do that. Um, and so I, I just quit and went for it. That was really the moment where yeah. it sort of came to a head and I said, how could I not go on that trip? Who would I, who, who am I becoming to say no to that? Yeah. And is that really who I want to be? And the answer was, then became super clear. Like, no, I don't want to be that person. I want to live. I want to do things that I genuinely want to do and, and face the consequences and deal yeah. with those as they come. But at least I'll be living true to myself rather than to an idea of myself. Yeah. So I'd already kind of broken the, the seal off that. And then I'd done some, I don't know, some contract work. We skied a lot in Australia and we did the roof of Australia project, yeah. which was something that I'd always wanted to do. So I'd already, I was already kind of traveling along a wavelength and it was just by coincidence that the founder of Black Crows called me on my birthday, which is something that he does. He calls people on their birthdays. So it's very old school, but he called me on mine. We were just talking and it came up sort of in parallel and I said, well, I could do that. And I had no idea if I could or not, but I just yeah. said it. And, you know, he was cool enough to sort of let me throw my hat into the ring and him and uh, another good friend of mine, Julian Renier, who was shaping all their, he still shapes all of their skis. Yeah. They sort of vouched for me, even though I wasn't really qualified and they yeah. had very qualified candidates from whatever Nike. So, and yeah. You were just a you're a sponsored skier from Australia, which is pretty weird. You're skiing for a small boutique, big mountain French brand anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but they, we knew each other and they trusted me. So, so I got to do it. So when the opportunity came, um, you know, I, I had some interview with all the board members because I was like a, a risky option. Um, but when the opportunity came, it was a, I was already, I was already there. I was already anticipating and hoping that that would happen. And I was yeah. just so pleased with the news. So it was a really natural step to just, it wasn't like a big leap. The big leap was when I quit the law firm to go to a snow yeah. camping trip. That in yeah. a way for me, psychologically was like, okay, you're pushing stop on something now. Yeah. Because whether you're facing the future on that or not right now you're deciding to do something else. Yeah. And then that, that put me on a path of believing that if you, if you live intentionally and you do what you're really passionate about, then you'll tap into the best version of yourself and you'll, you'll be happier. You'll be more balanced. You'll, you'll have more energy and you'll do better stuff. Yeah. With, people that you appreciate, you're, you're kind. So I'd sort of faced that already. And Black Crows was an ability for me to translate that into actual career, even though, you know, I, I still don't know if I've made the right career choices. I just am where I am. But uh, the, the difference maker, the difference maker for sure is that 
it's better to be really good at something, the best at it, yeah. than even if that thing is not the most lucrative career or the most high status thing or whatever, it's better to be the best you can be at something than be mediocre at something that, that people think is great. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the takeaway for sure. Well, I mean, it's obviously, you know, you're happy. So it's obviously was the right decision, you know, and it's like been a pretty interesting trip since you left Sydney. What was it like when you got to Chamonix and realized I'm not just here visiting to, on a ski trip, I'm actually going to be living in Chamonix. And um, that was your new backyard. Yeah, and I'm not the only Australian that's made that pilgrimage. Um, and my experience was probably similar, is that you, you arrive and you, 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 yeah, you come into this, this very daunting valley of, you know, you're coming in at like 800 metres above sea level and you're looking up at mountains that are 4,000 metres yeah. above sea level. And they go just straight up from the valley and there's just this, gothic looking granite that is just ending in these towers, you know, these like needles and these impossible lifts that go right to the top of them. And, you know, coming from, you know, front valley, <laughs> you just think, my goodness, how is this even possible? And where do the people actually ski down? And of course it wasn't really built so people, people could ski down. It wasn't built like a ski resort. It was built as a, mountaineering alpinism destination yeah um, but then you know skiing caught up with that and now you ski there so it was very daunting at first um and definitely the experience of being sort of locked out from something you could see from the bottom of the valley what what was there but you could also understand that so much of it was hidden yeah and inaccessible so that was definitely the first, the first winter that I was there, there was a sense that like, you know, how do you get into that? Even when you live there, even when you have a community there, there was a sense that this, this is this other world, this vertical, very big, scary world. And it's a whole nother practice than, than what I knew. It's, it's alpinism. So it's, it's a lot of gear and a lot of knowledge of, um, you know, rope work, steep skiing, um, steep awareness, glacier awareness, like other stuff than your average, like sort of avalanche awareness program that you do that you sort of need to learn. And also you need to find people to go with to sort of get the hang of it. So it does take time to understand um, the Chamonix style of skiing and that whole school and also what you get your kicks out of. Cause I spent a lot of my first winter a little bit bored because, you know, the, the skiing that I knew was not adapted at all to what's great there. And, you know, you needed to learn a lot of skills and create relationships with people who were doing that, that you could go and ski with, um, so that you could have those experiences. And it was only after like three, four, five years of being there and learning that you could start to sort of know when to go and to tap into those things. But once you do, um, you know, you're in an environment there where you have an access to the best skiing in your life without the use of, you know, a helicopter or some large expedition. Yeah. And you, you, you find yourself like 
alone. And I, I used to go out a lot alone because I enjoyed that. Um, but you find yourself climbing up these like, giant walls where you've got these huge ice sheets and it's like, I don't know how many degrees. I was never really into that, but it's, it's a lot of degrees steep. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you climb these things for hours and hours and hours and up you go and up you go and up you go. And you've got, you know, you've got your, you know, your one, you have your one, your one axe day. Yeah. You have your two axe day. And sometimes you have your, you know, your ice screws days and you're climbing up these things and then you get to the top and you put your stuff on and then you just have these like, you know, 1000 meter vertical, consistent, extremely steep, but just perfect runs. And that's where you learn to appreciate just like the, the beauty of the practice in its purest form where it's, it's steep, but the conditions are good. And you're just out there in a, in a really violent environment that is friendly to you on that day. Yeah. And that is just like a very different experience of skiing than, than you can get really anywhere else. And like, you know, that experience, you know, and then I know it was a bit tongue in cheek. You wrote that story for us called the best mountains in the world about skiing in Australia, which I know you love. So you've got the, um, you know, the, Chamonix with, you know, the steep ice climbing, a thousand metres is just sheer vertical. But you came, you know, I know you haven't been here for a few years, but when you were here 2017, we, you know, you timed in with, with uh, as the marketing department like to call the Blizzard of Oz number three. But you, your skiing here was still something you really enjoyed. It doesn't seem, you've never felt like it's a bit passe being, uh, you know, smaller. No, I mean... That's that's part of the growing up of dedicating your life to the practice of, of that sport and appreciating every part of it and every place where you can do it and, and not trying to compare apples with oranges and say, oh, the, I mean, there's people when you go to Nisiko who are sitting inside complaining because it only snowed 30 centimetres. Yeah. Uh, it's not really about whether a ski in Australia is good or bad. It's about your appraisal of it and what it gives you and your friends and your family. And that, that's the value of it. Um, can you compare uh, Threadbow to Chamonix? Certainly not, no. but you shouldn't because then you're just going to have a bad time in both places. You'll be upset in Chamonix because it's too steep and you'll be upset in Treadway because it's too flat and you'll just be an unhappy skier and no one wants to ski with those people. Um, so, you know, it's about, you know, appreciating what Australian skiing gives you um, to ski amongst the gum trees and to experience the, the way that the storm systems roll in and the phases of one. Um, yeah excitement that comes across the local radio, the hyperbole used by the mountain resorts to get people going and just appreciating that energy of like, let's all get excited about something because it's snowing. And yes, it's snowing in brackets sideways and it's zero <laughs> degree and <laughs> it's snowing at the very, very top of the mountain, but everywhere else is right. Like whatever. The point is, is that, you know, skiing is about leisure and discovery and um, participating in nature. Um, and Australia gives you one version of that, which is just amazing. And Chamonix gives you one version, 
Um, and I went skiing in Scotland while I was working at Black Crows and we were skiing on tussocks yeah. on little drifts of snow. And for them, it was the best conditions of the year. And for someone coming from Chamonix, it was absolute dog shit. But that, I remember those two days probably better than I remember most of the Chamonix days yeah. because it gave me something. And, and the people there were really passionate about where they came from and, and that, you know, there's nothing better than a good day, but a good well, day is, is, is your version of it. And it, it's your ability to appreciate that that I think is what, you know, that delivers you happiness and, and, and skiing is this like great vehicle to make you feel grateful. Um, well, and it doesn't matter how great it is. If you're grateful, you're grateful. Well, and so that is, you know, like um, when you have the best day, you know, everything comes together in your home resort. It's sort of, you know, your favorite resort, your favorite hill. It's going to be one of the best days skiing regardless. You know, it's like, as a surfer, you know, you're out at the alley at Cronulla and it's just perfect and pumping, which doesn't happen often, but you'll remember that as much as, you know, getting perfect right-hand barrels in Indonesia. So it's sort of, you know, when you get the day, and as you said, it's where you're passionate about where you're from. It's like it's from your country. So you just kind of, it sort of wells up a bit more, I reckon. Yeah, and I think as a, to become a, a full skier, it's about knowing what the west coast of New Zealand feels like. It's about knowing what the Southern Alps feel like. It's about knowing what Asia feels like, you know, and, and just experiencing all of those things and living, you know, the full enjoy of what gliding down the side of a mountain on a pair of skis can give you and appreciating all of its nuance. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the pursuit that I was kind of trying to, to get across to you at the, at the top of this call was like, the goal is not, you know, to be the best. The goal is to go the furthest yeah. and that, and, and then share that back with, you know, your family, your kids, your friends, and to have a life that is de- defined in a way by the, this pointless pursuit of pleasure, because in a secular sort of world where, you know, the church no one follows anymore. There's no trust in political institutes. There's this sort of void of things that you can believe in and put yourself into. And I think skiing and surfing and, and these types of things, they're not just a, it's not tennis. It's not just a sport. It's not just for fitness or whatever. Yeah. It's a thing that you can put yourself into that you can live alongside of that you can do without thinking, but then get value from in all these different ways. And then even that you can create, sort of family and community around. And I think that's the, that's the point, is it not? Yeah, hundred percent. Like, you know, hundred percent. It's sort of like, well, now yeah, you're talking about family because obviously your family are in Australia here. You, you know, you're living in you know, Norway, you know, um, surrounded by your family there. Yeah. And how old your daughter's now? Um, 18 months old. She is one and a half, yeah. And so half. she's eighteen months. Her and name is Ingrid. Ingrid, yeah, yeah. And so, which is the, a name? Sorry. Well, again, like I know, um, how did you end up in Oslo? Um, I just fell in love, to be honest, and uh, I didn't see it coming. Um, and my wife Lena, she was on holiday in Germany, and that's right. what she would do. 
for like three weeks every spring, she would leave Oslo and go to Chamonix to ski and learn to ski in Chamonix because she comes from, you know, a sporting family and she was getting into the mountains in her 20s as well. And we had just a chance encounter and just met and the, I don't know, did the earth just stop turning, I think, on both sides and, and then we were just like bonded together. Um, and we share a lot in common and I had never really, um, experienced someone with her level of intelligence, with her, uh, beauty and with her like braveness and like desire to be out in the mountains, like serious mountains. Um, yeah. she was just like this perfect human being that I met. It just was so shocking to me. And the only thing more shocking than kind of, meeting her was like the fact that she liked me back. That's, was, right. That's what I was going to say. She yeah. You in the same think, um, yeah. And she's, um, you know, so impressive that I feel like weak by comparison. And, uh, and I think my parents are pretty happy that we ended up together. Cause I think they're like, yeah, yeah you, you're doing a bit better than you should. So like, you know, keep yeah. it going. Yeah. Batting above yeah. the average as they like to Yeah, <laughs> definitely punching above your weight there, Chris. So just, uh, you know, don't, don't fuck it up. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's, um, of course you're not, you're no longer with Black Crows. You had a period with Awaco and now you're working for um, DB and based in Oslo like that. Is that where your office is? Is that the, yeah. Well, to go back to meeting Lena, I mean, I, Lena doesn't come from Chamonix, obviously. So we, yeah. we spent the first few years of our relationship um, flying back and forth and just being really broke and in love. Yeah. and Long distance love affair. Yeah. Yeah. And we just sunk all of our resources into, into, into visiting each other. And then that slowly became like a cohabitation in two cities sort of thing. And then eventually it became clear that, you know, one of us needed to make a move. And I was like, a, you know, I'm the immigrant in a way, and she has family here and a setup. And so I said, okay, it'll be me. So I've really just spent the last few years trying to rearrange my life around her and us here, which right. is a big challenge when you've already made that shift. Yeah. And then a few years later, just like upend everything again and go to another country where you don't speak the language and you've just got to reinvent everything. It's been very tough, but it's provided also a, the, the right level of discomfort to kind of go on and do new things. So um, that's why I left Black Crows after five years, yep. four and a half years. Um, and I left at a time which was good because the company was a success. It is a success. It's now global. Um, people know what it is. Um, it now, when I started, it was like eight people. Now it's like 25, 26, um, and they're doing really, really well. Um, but I needed to find something else. I wasn't super lucky finding uh, something that could compete with that experience moving to yeah. Oslo. And I, was, I, I mean, I was quite underwhelmed because when you, when you get to work on such a cool and relevant brand, it's something you really like to do and it's great people and it's working. It's like, it was just really hard to find something that didn't feel like a downer. Um, and so I didn't take anything, but I did, um, I did experience a product which just blew me away. Um, and it was called Awaco and it was just a startup from a guy from Sydney actually, who was a happy Googler and, you know, an entrepreneur with an MBA and it, it, 
was a product that said, you know, you can, instead of lugging your gear around the, the planet or owning tons of stuff, just get it in any cool retail shop. Yeah. And you go in there, you've got, you know, you use the app, you go, you, you know, you go amongst all this cool product and you just pick one you want, you walk in there, you take it and then you leave without the feeling of pain. But it was this like, to me, next generation of how do you consume the things that you love, whether that be golf clubs or tennis rackets or skis or bikes or whatever. I just thought, my goodness, this is a way to access the things that you love to do where wherever you're going without the need for all the weight or to own so much stuff and yeah. to experience, you know, the Channel Islands board versus, you know, a Donald Brink or, you know, a Mayhem or, you know, in skiing to be able to jump on Black Crows one day and, a, you know, a pair of faction skis the next day or whatever and just sample things as you move around the planet. So it was like this very sort of cool ideal. I thought, imagine, imagine that. So I did that for a year yeah. um, and that was going very well because we were adding a lot of new stores, a lot of new locations with really good product. Um, we won some awards and it was ticking along. And as a startup does, you're just making ends meet as you go, but you're counting your progress. But then um, Lena was pregnant. Right. And I was doing a startup hours with a company that was sort of very remote, but based in San Francisco. And I'm here in Oslo and I'm working all sort of hours of the night. And it wasn't really compatible. And Lena had this sort of grow up moment with me where it was like, you need to be solid now. You know, you need to be here. You need to do hours here. You need to be properly insured. You need to have access to the parental leave scheme. Like there was all this stuff that, that I just didn't have. And in the short period of time, since I'd like tried to get across from France living to Norway living to this, in, like this job that I took that was based in the U S and, I just kind of had to make a family call. Yeah. So I did that. And uh, that's when I joined a company that is located here um, that makes bags. Uh, they used to be called douchebags, actually. Yeah. That's how they got their start. Um, and uh, it was similar in many ways to Black Rose because they're doing good design for sporty people who like to travel. Yes. And they started by making the ultimate ski bag. Yeah. And so I saw a lot of parallels and it was a good fit and there was an opportunity and, and they, they kind of asked me, you know, they, they said, yeah, we've been looking for someone for this, this role. Can you do it? And I said, yeah, that's, let's, let's do it. And that was really the right call um, because it is true when, when you have a family, things change. And I'm a bit of a gypsy, like sort of a, I've had a bit of a vagrant lifestyle and it all sounds like a noble thing in these stories that I tell you. But, you know, when you don't own anything, your name isn't written on any documents in the, in the country you live in. Um, your work is this sort of flexible ball thing. And when, that's all really cool. But when you start to like uh, have a family, there's other needs that, you know, you're not the first in line for. No, not and at all. So it's, it's been, I think, like a year or two of just learning how to make calls that, that you are not in the center of and also unwrapping yourself and learning that it's not just about you and your ego either. There's other people 
and there's things that you need if you want to have a family and if you want to be, you know, not just a good father, but also like a, a good partner, a good husband, you know, you need yeah. to be a bit more solid. So, you know, I've had to, I wouldn't say that DB is entirely shelving my sort of journey. Um, it's not dissimilar, but I definitely have started to make decisions that are different to what I was doing in my twenties. Yeah. Well, as you say, you're in your thirties now, it's inevitable. <laughs> it's what happens. Um, the, uh, yeah, you can't be, what is it? the old Peter Pan syndrome cannot last forever. And you don't yeah. want to, you know, it's like a Peter Pan club. But there's, I mean, it's nice. We have a home now. We, yeah, we actually, have a home. Well, we don't have a home. We have a mortgage, but it's a house Yeah, that's and it's got our name on it. And yeah. that feels good. And we yeah. bought a table that we installed yesterday and that oh. felt good too. So there is, there is, um, something in making a home and Ingrid is, um, like a little mini us. She is just 110 miles an hour and she sings and talks and she's outgoing and says hello to strangers and anything she can climb, she'll climb it. She spent the winter being towed around in a pook, which is like a, a sled that you have a harness and then you tow them behind on cross country skis. And she just loved it. We went ski touring just on one or two occasions um, with her in a big backpack. Yep. And one of the days was a powder day and I walked up there and to the top of the mountain and we skied down in powder and you should have heard her just cheering and screaming in the back, having the best time. And there, it's just so rewarding to like bear witness to somebody who'd been brought into the world that seems to feel the same things that you do on a molecular level and yeah. just, just, I don't know how you can explain it's how hard, rewarding. Yeah, I know. It yeah, it's, it's it's hard to uh, enunciate, but it's just sort of yeah, it's 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 there, and it's um, it's just one of those things, you know. It's sort of it's uh, intrinsic nature, I think. And yeah, you guys. How do you, gotta, feel, um, how do you feel about that? With you know, I've watched Joey and Aki um, grow up basically, and I can't even imagine what they're like now. How tall they are, what they're into. <laughs> But, you know, I've watched them grow up and, and, and take on skiing. And I mean, they're both incredible at skiing and just the way they, the way they do it, they have all the technical ability, but they've sort of forgotten it in this sort of like nonchalant vibe <laughs> that they do. But what's it been like bringing them up in your values and what, where, how do they see things now? Well, I think, you know, you have a, almost like an unseen influence, you know, it's not like you sort of try, well, you try and teach by example, lead by example. I think here, you know, with, like, I'm lucky with Amanda, it's just like a natural, natural thing. And the kids, like growing up in Threadbow, they've been on snow their whole life, more or less, you know, Joey was like three months when he first moved to Threadbow, you know, so, and Aki was like one and a half. So to them, it's just their natural thing. And I think, you know, you'll see the same thing with Ingrid. It's just, uh, they just become part of their environment, you know, and the environment's such a big part of them. So I think, um, you know, it's an advantage living somewhere like this, you know, cause there's, there's not, you know, the environment is such a big part of their life. Cause you're in a small little village in the middle of a national park, you know, um, uh, be like, it'd be you know, like if we, if we stayed in Manly, I imagine it would have been the same thing with the ocean, you know, but, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing watching it. 
And, you know, now they're Joey's 15, Archie's 17, about to get a driver's license. You know, so um, they don't ski with me anymore because I'm too slow. But, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just one of the, it's it's a intangible thing, but it's pretty amazing at the same time. Because, you, you know, you and Amanda have raised them in a sort of asymmetrical lifestyle where, you know, you, you have multiple businesses and you've launched and founded very different things. Um, and so you've been able to weave them together. Do you think that they will follow a similar path? Um, hard to say. I think so. You know, looking at it, I don't think, um, I don't know if either one will end up in uh, doing a law degree or anything like that. I think, um, yeah, they both um, want to follow the path of skiing, uh, different directions, you know. Aki has um, goals and, uh, you know, big mountain and free ride. Whereas Joey, as you know, is like all about park and pipe. But uh, as far as his focus, yeah, pure uh, competition focus goes, but I think both of them, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch, you know, how it unfolds over the next 10 years. I think it's one of those things, uh, as you said, you know, what you know when you're 20s, you know, making decisions then, you said, like, it's amazing people, bang, they have a startup and get a business going when they're 20. I think these two will just sort of continue to, to learn, you know. They'll be travelling, you know. As you said, skiing is one of those um, those sports like surfing where it's a, a life, you know, a lifelong journey. And I think for those two, it'll be yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because I think that's inevitable, just because they're so passionate about it. And it's, and it's a it's a it's a pure pure love of the of, of the sport. It's not like they're just doing it for an end result. It's yeah, as you said, it's sort of just a just a, a journey and just a, a road they're going to travel. It's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, there's real, I think there's real merit in like drifting intentionally. Not everything has to be goal oriented or like, you don't have to be KPI'd on every part of your life. Exactly. Kids, I think some of these kids, I don't want to say kids these days, but they're so programmed. (laughs) They're so programmed. And it's like, man, could you imagine being in that, in that, you know, sort of pressure boiler from when you're a kid and not being allowed to just, drift or be uh, kind of captured into a culture and just live, live in it. No, I, I can't imagine. And I think intentional drifting, it's just a, such an apt description because and, and it is healthy. And yeah, I just, um, and we've sort of, I, I suppose, intentionally and unintentionally have encouraged that, you know, both uh, Amanda and I always thought we just didn't want to, we didn't want to direct our kids into any sort of vocation, you know, like I've always believed in, um, just letting them discover their own sort of desires and where, where they're going to end up, you know, whereas you often see it, you know, you, you know, I've sort of, I've had people say to me, Oh, you know, when are you going to you know, how come you didn't take them back to Sydney and put them in a, you know, a directional private school or something like that. It's just not, not our way, you know? So no, I think it's going to be good. And I'm um, looking forward. To uh, I have to admit um, mum and dad, you know, I think had come, come from this, has come from a similar school and, I wonder if in my story, um, whether a bit more direction and instruction from them would have helped. In some cases, probably. Um, but I was very much left to figure out things the way I wanted. And I think that's like, that's no small thing to sort of be empowered in that way and have your own, this idea of your life is something that you have complete agency over. Yeah. And you're allowed to change as you change. I think some of these kids in schools and in this like programming where everything is set, 
And they just end up being really neurotic. And I remember um, when, when Lena and I went skiing with um, Joey and Aki in Threadbar a few years ago on that, you know, one of those yeah. great days, we, you know, we spent the morning skiing in, you know, around the Merritts area and in the, in the cruiser and down in the Stanley's Gulch and then underneath some of the chairlifts. And then we were heading back towards um, Krakenback and we were following Joey actually, because Joey was sort of leading the way most of the day. And we stumbled upon this like a uh, cool jump that was naturally formed below a cat track. So we ducked yeah. the rope and we sort of stepped out this jump. And it was just cool to then spend, I don't know, like an hour or an hour and a half just going off this jump that we just found and hiking up and doing it again. And Lena at whatever, 35, me at 30 and, and Joey and Aki, like all of us so different, different yeah. you know, countries, different ages, but um, just kind of letting the day unfold and just their coolness and ease with letting things happen was I think really unique in that they were sort of, they could lead without leading, they could follow without following. And they just, they were just completely at ease in themselves and in their environment. And I think that's like, it's really amazing kind of to see where they will go and how they will approach, you know, their, you know, their lives and how skiing will kind of guide the, guide the way for them similar to that day. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it will. Like, it's, um, I know. You often look at them now and go, really? <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, no, it's definitely. And, and I think, um, you know, the environment and nature has a big impact on, on that. And as you said, the ease of moving through it, it's an important thing, you know, because it's, uh, it's a constant in life that you want, you know, you want to be in touch with your world, not just your sort of man-made world, so to speak. But yeah, yeah. I think there there is this sort of idea that you're supposed to impose yourself on the world and uh, pursue a career path, climb a ladder, like achieve a score at school or whatever you need to do. Mm. And um, you can do those things. That's true. But for the lucky few who find themselves inside of something like skiing, for example, there are others. But those things can also guide you and you can drift with intention. And for me, the, 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 the most happiness, the most colorful life, but also I think the most success for me to grow and to um, learn skills, um, develop any sort of professional reputation, make money, buy things, have a life, meet new people. It's all come basically through skiing or some thread that began there that yeah. just kind of keeps unfurling. And I think there's, you know, not everyone has that. Not everyone gets to grow up in a belief system or with parents that have an agenda to go to different parts of the world to get really into a practice that you can kind of keep going with and, and grow with. And I think that's underrated. And in fact, I think often talk down upon like, no, you shouldn't, th those are called holidays. You don't do that yeah. in your life. Um, but in my experience, and I'm sure in yours, like they are what continue to provide actually. And the context of those can change. You know, they can provide you with holidays. They can provide you with competitions. They can provide you with all sorts of things, but they can also provide you with a, a professional life, a family life, a community uh, as, as you go on. And I think those, those, um, those mores are, I think, being 
stripped apart at, at a faster and faster rate as people realize that you know, the definition of a professional life or of a family life like is actually so much wider than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, and that, um, yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, for me, it happened through, through surfing and it just sort of, yeah, which led to the snow and which directed my whole, you know, both directed my life and my profession and my career, which is pretty awesome. And I think, um, yeah, it's an ability to, to recognize that and not be, not be afraid of it and just, you know, go with the flow, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Chris. That was a good chat. Good chat. Yeah. And, um, nice. Yeah. I know. I'll have uh, one of our record, one of our longest podcasts, I think. We've cracked uh, an hour and 20. But, um, yeah, well, thanks for that's catching awesome. up. Brevity's never been my strong suit. So, <laughs> sorry about that's that. That's all right. People, they can always fast forward if we're boring them at any stage with this. But, um no, and thanks for all your contributions to uh, Chill Factor over the years, both as a, a writer and uh, you know, in front of the lens. So, uh, yeah, and I'm looking forward to catching up whenever that may be when uh, we are free to get, you know, move across the equator again. I would love that. And, you know, Aki and Joey um, must accept our invitation here. Yeah. Uh, naturally, they'll have a little family in Germany that they'll go into. But also here, they uh, will have a, an opportunity to come and experience skiing in Norway. And we'll take care of it, obviously, here. And they'll yeah. have everything we need. So that'll be very, very nice. But hey, I've got one question. Um, yeah. Chill Factor, um, you know, that that's still going. I still get the newsletters. I, don't, I haven't really had the time to contribute as, as much as I'd like to. But, um, you know, do you, do you see... Uh, you know, you see a future in continuing. Why? Um, <laughs> good question, actually. Well, I just think it's uh, like it's in, important. Well, it's not so much important, but I think it's. I think it's just. I do think it's important for the culture of free skiing in Australia. I think it's uh, a good. I think it's a good thing that does exist. You know, I think it's quite sad that, like, say, for example, transfer doesn't exist as a print magazine anymore. I mean, I'm obviously old school. My whole career has been in print magazines, but I think with the newsletters, the magazine annually, you know, we, uh, who's involved with it, you know, Watkin, McLaren, Rilla and Harrow, you know, so there's a lot of passion there. Everyone's sort of life is so much revolved around snow and skiing. It's a inevitable thing. I think it's just, Hey, and I really enjoy doing it. You know, it's just an extension of pretty well who I am. So I think, yeah, and I just think it's nice for skiing, Australian skiing, to have a have a not so much a voice, but to have a a celebration of what it is, you know. And I think, yeah, we'll keep doing it and see how we go. Why, <laughs> mate? Yeah, it's not going to pay off my mortgage ever, but it's a good thing. I think the newsletters is a good format. Uh, I I read them and I get them, and I think that's like a clever way to do it, and then to fund the print edition through. The sub, yeah. the sub. I mean, that's what's happening at the moment in in the US. What are they using? Substack and yeah, the subscriptions are. I think there's all this stuff changes and subscriptions are booming now. And yeah, uh, all this sure. stuff is is on its way back. No, I think it's really great that you do it and not only to celebrate Australian skiing but also define it. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
and then continue to redefine it for others so that they can say, okay, this is a thing. This is a thing that I can be a part of and, uh, and it exists and it's like this and here's why it's great. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, like you said, the newsletter gives us the opportunity to stay in touch, to communicate with our, you know, the snow community throughout the whole year. And then, the, you know, and the, it's the annual magazine, the print magazine is just sort of, you know, sort of like, bang, we're here. Winter's about to come. Here's our celebration. You know, we'll be, the lifts will be spinning in three weeks and away we go. Let's get into it. Yeah. No, it's great, Rigo. I hope uh, I hope it continues, and uh, I would love to contribute. Well, as you, to my life doesn't look so upside down. Yeah, well, you know when you want to contribute, you know my email, and I'm more than happy to uh, see your the Chris Booth byline again. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks heaps for all your time, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed that. It was cool. Likewise, uh, very flattered with the opportunity to be. Uh, to, be, to share things well that wraps up another chill factor podcast if you enjoyed it please rate review and share it with friends we'll drop the next episode in a couple of weeks until then i hope you get out and live and love australian skiing find us at chillfactor.com he's a curly head mate who's ready to go nobody knows snow like reggae no snow he's ready to blow like an atomic reactor this is the show where we call it chill factor talk on the power are you ready right now there's icons galore and they're ready to chow We got more power than a snowflower tractor Dropping the clutch, yeah, this is chill time